You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Welcome. It's episode 70 of Grow Yourself Up, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Kat Sims. Kat is an author, podcaster, and content creator who is still trying to figure the whole adulting thing out. I think, to be honest, we probably all go in that bucket. Kat's made a living out of documenting her failures and successes as a 40-year-old woman, a mother, and a wife across various social media platforms. Her mission in life is to make as many women as possible feel seen and to make them realize that they are never, ever the only one. She's honest as fuck, wonderfully self-deprecating, and willing to say all the things the rest of us hide away, and in doing so, manage to make us all feel a little bit better about our perfectly messy lives. I'm really grateful to Kat for sharing her story about sobriety. Um, a huge like, part of my purpose is to break down shame in, in all different ways. And um, I'm deeply grateful to everyone who comes on and shares their story. But I think that um, yeah, I'm really grateful about the sobriety story because I think that often um, drinking is so normalized and we may not realize how dependent we are on it for our own regulation. And it often comes with so much shame. Many of us have had parents who are heavy drinkers or alcoholics. And so then um, it's upsetting if we then find ourselves repeating a pattern. And I really want to kind of like break down the shame around that and highlight that any issues with um, addiction or using a substance or a process or food or gambling or excessive shopping um, is an attempt, it's our best attempt to regulate ourselves. Because, you know, when we haven't had our needs met in childhood and we don't have a, a window of tolerance, a wide enough window of tolerance, what that means is that we're constantly pushed out of our window of tolerance. And so we look to other things to help us. And drinking, I think, is one of those things that if you've ever, if you've noticed you're a binge drinker or if um, you always like drinking and now you feel absolutely desperate to have a glass of wine at bath time, maybe it's um, something to look at. But hold yourself kindly as you listen to this. And um, I will put some resources around this into the show notes. Okay, let's get started. And I'd love to hear your takeaways. 
Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me this morning. It's a great, great pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. So, Kat, tell us a bit about your journey to motherhood. What were your expectations of yourself before you had your first daughter? Um, how did it pan out? Tell us about some of that. I'll tell you what, my, my transition to motherhood was catastrophic. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I grew up very much believing that preparing meant that you would be successful. Being successful was very important to me because that was a lot of what my parents responded to in terms of positive attention, love, like if I won stuff or got good grades or won scholarships and things. So I approached motherhood in the same way. I'm like, I'm going to prepare, read the books or buy all the stuff. And I made these very, you know, grandiose, obnoxious declarations that now make me want to go and punch my old self in the face because I was things like, oh, you know, organic food and wooden toys and we're not going to have screens at tables and oh, and all the rest of it. And um, I mean, it lasted about three seconds, but <laughs> and I did my birth plan. and. Uh, this is 10 years ago. So, you know, it was, this was very much, we weren't into birth preferences at this point. It was still very much a birth plan. Nobody, you know, decided to tell me that this wasn't what was going to happen. They were like, write your plan out. That's what's going to happen. So I very diligently wrote my plan out and it was four typed pages of A4 front and back. So eight sides. It was color coordinated according to my needs, my husband's needs, my baby's needs. Uh, <laughs> and it was laminated. <laughs> and I can only imagine what the midwife said at their midwife station when I <laughs> handed that to them. Whatever it was, it was wholly justified. Um, anyway, needless to say, everything went out of the window. Uh, I did not get the water birth. Um, instead, I was sort of naked, puking on the floor, begging for an epidural. And my husband said, my husband said, oh, you told, you sort of said to me that if you start begging for an epidural, then I'm to tell you that you can do this and you don't need an epidural. And he said, the look on your eyes when I said that to you made me think that you were literally going to gouge my eyes out with a rusty spoon. And so, yeah. We might need to get the epidural quickly. Yeah. So we went up, had the epidural, and then it was just horrendous. Like, actually, the epidural was fine, but my labor was so slow because I was so freaked out, so pumping through with adrenaline. Um, and, and they sort of, you know, I learned afterwards that if you freak out, then that adrenaline sends all that oxygenated blood to your arms and your legs for fight or flight. And your uterus is a muscle that still has to do the relaxing and the contracting, but it's doing it on limited resources. So it's longer, harder and more painful. But I didn't know that at the time. So we went, it was a traumatic labor. We had crash cots in. In the end, she was fine. I was like three seconds away from an emergency cesarean. But she came out and nobody said to me, that was a traumatic birth. Like that was a lot. I was there for 38 hours. Nobody, nobody said that to me. Everybody went, oh, well done. Here you go. Here's your baby. She's very healthy. Off you pop. Wow. And by the way, make sure you breastfeed because that's what good mothers do. And um, I went home absolutely shell-shocked. And uh, Well, you probably had PTSD. I mean, I mean, I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind. And I really think that my birth experience and the traumatic nature of it really affected my ability to breastfeed. I don't know if there's any scientific evidence to back that up, but in my gut, that really felt like that was largely um, an issue. And 
Then breastfeeding was the next trauma. And I spent eight weeks just in agony, in agony. There was not a feed that wasn't excruciatingly painful. I had blisters, cuts. I had mastitis three times. From the antibiotics they gave me for that, I had nipple thrush, which is just an admin nightmare because you're constantly not trying to pass it backwards and forwards. And it got to a point after eight weeks where I was just, every time she woke up, I just started to shake, physically shake because I did not, I knew I had to feed her and I didn't want to. And it was my mum who said, listen, I've sat by for eight weeks and I cannot keep quiet anymore. You need to give that baby a bottle. And I was like, but I can't because it's basically a combination of tequila, cocaine and dung beetles. And I'm a terrible <laughs> mother if I give her formula. She's like, I swear to God, give her some fucking formula. I don't know if I can yeah. swear. I swear. No, give her some fucking formula. Okay? You can <laughs> give swear her some as much as you formula. want. So we gave her that. And this is how crazy I was. I made my husband hold the bottle the first bottle of formula as well, so that he couldn't blame me alone for giving her formula. Oh. I was out of my mind. And the next day I called the health visitor hysterical, like couldn't barely, could barely breathe. Not once did she go, I think you might need some support. She just went, I said, I need you to tell me I'm not a terrible mother because I've given her some formula, like spitting it out through snot bubbles and tears and things. And she said, well, listen, you can always undo the damage you've done when it comes to weaning. The health visitor said those words to you. To a woman who could barely breathe because she was hysterically crying. She said that exact thing to me. <gasps> Kat, I'm so sorry. It, do you know what? It's all right because now, I mean, I, it's some, I still have to deal with all of this. But I mean, I am dealing with it, but it's still something. It's not something 10 years later that I would say I'm done with. You know, that constant perception of me being a damaging mother is something I have to override all the time. Like those little moments when you're not the best mother, you know, when you lose your patience or when you chuck them, you know, fish fingers and pizza for the third night in a row, whatever. Those moments... It's me. It's me too. But those moments, my reactions can be disproportionate. I can be really hard on myself because of that experience. And I know that, I know that link. I know it's a trigger, so I am able to manage it. And it's not like I genuinely believe I'm a terrible person. But that was a very difficult transition to motherhood. And, you know, unsurprisingly after that, I ended up with severe postnatal depression that was, wasn't diagnosed until a year. My husband was away for seven months uh, during that first year because he was touring. Oh my word, oh my I was on my own. I was in London. My pa all my family at the time were up north in Yorkshire. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have grandparents that would just come and take her for an hour and a half. I had a bath. Jimmy was away and I would just walk around our local park hours at a time. I don't think I've ever been thinner than I was after I had my first because I, I walked for about five, six hours a day because I just couldn't bear to be in the house. And also the really hard thing was that when Jimmy did come home, sort of in those seven months, he would be away for three weeks, back for a few days, away again, back, you know. When he came home, and he always thought he was doing the right thing, and he was. I mean, we didn't know. We, we had no idea what we were doing. He would just take the baby and leave me, and he would take her out, and, he would, and I wouldn't see almost either of them. And at the time, I was like, thank God, I don't want any, you know. Yeah, thank God I want my space, but, but you needed holding think there was a resentment growing that exactly that I wasn't held but at the same time he was freaking out he's like I'm away and this this she can't mother she's not mothering properly you know it was so terrifying um and that inevitably ended up having quite a you know a drastic uh, impact on our relationship that 
sort of reared its ugly head five years later. So, and all of that is to say, I can imagine people listening go, God, that sounds horrendous. But actually, it was so normalized at the time. Nobody said, this is a particularly crazy entry into motherhood. Nobody said that. Nobody said, this is what it is. You know, it's motherhood. This is it. And so what, what that meant, I'm really sorry. This is a massive monologue, but what I, no, not at all. What that meant is that I then thought, well, if this is how it is and I'm so there's something wrong with me, miserable, there's something wrong with me. Exactly. And that's been very hard to overcome. And we just have to pause there because I really want to honor you there because what it sounds like was you were in such a huge survival place and having health professionals gaslight you in that way where they say, undoing the damage you can done. Like the only way to support babies, the only, only, only way is to support their mothers and their families with love and kind of um, education and support about how you want to mother. And more than that, with support around the actual experience of breastfeeding, because there's so much trauma in breastfeeding and there's so much terrible gaslighting from professionals. I mean, I had something similar in a way, but I said to them, you need to stop telling me. And we, I, I didn't breastfeed basically either. But I can hear how that kind of idea of this is just how it's supposed to be. And therefore you internalized that it was you who was like wrong or bad. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the irony is, is that, again, it was 10 years ago, people weren't talking openly about how hard mother, motherhood was. You know, that's why I started writing and, and doing what I did. Um, and so I'd sit in play groups and everybody would be like, oh, it's so lovely. She's so, and I was like, why are you all not just in a puddle of your own misery? Like, I am. <laughs> you know, and the chances are they probably actually Saying were. Saying my life is over. What have I done? Yeah. yeah, but they probably, most of them probably were, but nobody felt empowered enough to speak about it. And that's why it was so important to me to start talking about how hard it is and about how that differentiation between Loving your kids, but not loving the job of motherhood. Yes. Because that's the reality. Any mother who says, I love being a mother. I love picking up 17 random socks that people have stuffed in various places all day, every day. You know, I love finding rotten apple cores under, under the kids' beds. I love it when I have to wipe their ass seven times a day. You know, it's not true. I love what they call me stinky mummy. Yeah, it's not a fun job. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't love your children. Yeah, exactly. And listening to you, I mean, that, that first year and your husband uh, traveling, how did you actually kind of, like, what actually prompted you to get help? Who actually said, my word, you really need some support and maybe some therapy or maybe some meds or something? I had an incredible uh, GP at the time who really sadly isn't there anymore, but um, I, I know now she was such a godsend. I had been on anti-anxiety and antidepressants before I was pregnant. And then obviously I came off them while I was pregnant because everybody said, did you break the baby? Nobody worried about whether it would break me. You'd but break the mummy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that seems to be part of the cause. Um, and in the first few sort of checkup appointments, I was teary and she sort of said, you know, just keep in touch with me. Did a little. And then when she was just about a year, just before Billy turned a year, I was there again and I was re I was still really sobbing and she went, this isn't okay. It's not normal. And, um, and she said, I think, you know, you need some support and I think we need to put you back onto your antidepressants. And the relief, the relief I felt when she said, this isn't normal. I was like, oh, maybe 
it's not me. Maybe it's my brain. And I was all right with that because I, my brain had screwed me over before. You know, it had depression. I'd had anxiety. So that I was very comfortable with. But I'd sort of got into this narrative that I was really sad, yes, and unhappy. But then I wasn't sleeping and it was exhausting and I was on my own. So isn't that just what being a mother is? And it didn't occur to me that it shouldn't be like that. So when she said this isn't normal, I was like, oh, thank God. And she gave me the meds and I had some speaking therapy. And, and it, really, it really helped. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that year was also quite catastrophic in terms of my addiction and and that kind of escalated there, which is probably not surprising, but not surprisingly, but the meds and just hearing her go, it's not normal, you need some support was transformational. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we can go into that now because when you say your addiction, so you're talking about drinking. Um, and we can really conceptualize of, of drinking or addiction as a, as a thing about self-regulation and issue, having issues with our ability to regulate ourselves. So when we're plunged into such a traumatic time and we don't know how to regulate, of course, we would start drinking more. And I'm really grateful you for, to sharing some of this because I think that there's so much shame actually around the story because we're, mothers are often told, Oh, have a, have a like a glass of wine at bedtime or drink to get through bath time. And that's so normalized. And we do that. And then it exacerbates our anxiety and we wonder why we can't read it. And it's kind of, there's so much misinformation around this. So tell us about how it escalated for you. I mean, I'd always been, I know now that I kind of, I, I think that I was born an addict. You know, as a kid, I used to wake up early before everybody else. I was the only child in our household. My, I had half brothers and sisters that lived elsewhere, but I was the only one. I'd wake up early. I would get the massive packet of Kit Kat, 16 of them out of the fridge and I would eat every single one and I would stuff all the wrappers down the so side of the sofa. And then when mum said to me, have you eaten all those Kit Kats? I'd be like, no. I mean, I wasn't obviously very smart. I'm the only kid in the house, <laughs> but I would lie through my teeth. Now, if that's not addictive behavior, I don't know what is. Um, so I believe I was always, I, I've always had that predisposition to just needing more all the time. And Throughout, I mean, my family drank a lot. Again, it was very normalized to get drunk. On Sunday lunches, we'd all hang out together. We never had like a couple of bottles of wine, called it a day. We all got shit-faced. That was how we showed love. That was how we had fun. That was how I thought you drank. You know, you didn't just have one glass. You drank to get drunk, and it was fun when you were drunk. And for a lot of the time, it actually was a lot of fun being drunk. You know, I had some of my best nights on the piss. But, you know, as they say, it's like at first it's fun, then it's fun with consequences, and then it's just consequences. And, you know, I sort of had started to get to that point of it just being consequences. And it wasn't that, you know, I never drank in the morning, I never hid vodka in a coffee cup, I never hid bottles around the house. That wasn't my brand of alcoholism. I was very much, I drank daily, maybe a bottle, two bottles of wine max. And then when I went out, I was all in. So that was my thing. Binge drinking was my real problem. Once I started, I had no idea where I would be when I stopped, what was going to happen, and if, when I would stop. My husband had no idea about those things either. You know, my kids didn't know that. And I never really, I never got really, really drunk in the house. The kids didn't really see it. They, they saw occasionally if we were out socializing at like a family party or something, but not enough to make them think my mum's a pisshead. But it was when I was out and it was Jimmy that really bore the brunt of it. And they definitely saw me not being able to get up in the morning for like something because I was too hungover. They definitely saw that. 
But I think how it affected them the most was through my lack of patience, through my rage moments. I would have these real hot flashes of rage. I was probably not very present because, I, you know, there were definitely times where I was like, oh, God, I'd skip the pages. I don't want to read the story because I've got a nice glass of, you know, Sauvignon Blanc downstairs or a nice bottle. That's who we're kidding. And eventually that just became a very normal thing for me to drink. And Jimmy would go to bed and I'd stay up late on my own and drink. Uh, and then throughout my drinking history, really terrible things happened. You know, sexual assault, rape, all of that stuff happened when I was in blackout or when I was too drunk. I'm so sorry. But that was never enough to make me stop. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, if somebody said to me, you're allergic to nuts, and if you eat nuts, you're going to put your life in danger, I'd never eat nuts again. Um, but when I was drinking, I often put myself in danger and I just carried on doing it. So that's the insanity, isn't it? That's the bonkersness of it all. That's the insanity. But I think that that um, it's our best attempt. I mean, all of these things, um, drinking, shopping, drugs, if you do prescription pills or whatever. Oh, yeah, I had that. I did. I, I used drugs as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a double fister, if you like. Drugs and drink. And I think that's really a common sort of pairing. But when we do that, it's our best attempt to help ourselves. I mean, it's functional in the moment until it stops becoming functional because we are trying to regulate. And in your first year of motherhood, where it sounds like being alone so much, of course, you would have picked up on drinking more then. Yeah. You know, like you say, it, it did work. You know, when I was in my teens and 20s, drinking did exactly what I needed it to do. It gave me the confidence to be in those social situations. It made me funny. It made me a bit more outgoing. It made me comfortable. It made me able to talk to boys. It, you know, it did all of those things. But when I became a mother and as I got older and the consequences started to become more and more, it stopped working. And that's sort of what they mean. It was just consequences, you know, and I was just waking up, even if that consequence was just I'd had two bottles of wine the night before and then I woke up feeling really shitty and I had to look after my kids. Like, that's still a consequence. But often the consequences were more, you know. I think what brought me into AA eventually, finally, was a really low rock, a really high rock bottom, relatively. Uh, I was just waking up every morning at four o'clock with these debilitating panic attacks. And I knew it was the alcohol. Like, I just knew. And I couldn't tell you why, but I knew I was drinking too much and I knew that I also wasn't ever going to stop because I never had before. I'd always picked up again. Um, and so, and that's the thing, like I'd managed to stop for a week, two weeks, three months at one point. And I just felt the benefits. I was like, this is amazing. And then I'd picked up again. And that is the point at which I go, that's, that's an addict. I'm an addict. And I think it's really important. And what helped you? Yeah, carry on, sorry. I was going to say, I think it's really important to you know, stress this point that an alcoholic doesn't have to be living on a park bench. You don't have to have been in prison. You don't have to have lost a job. You don't have to have blown up your entire life. There are so many very functioning people who, for all intents and purposes, their alcoholism looks very acceptable. You know, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people hate the word. They shy away from that word. And I appreciate that. Like, I'm a very... I'm a very grateful alcoholic because I know my life would never be, never have been as good as it is now if I was still drinking. So I'm very grateful for my addiction and I'd never give it up if somebody asked me to. Um, 
So a lot of it's really important to me to bash that stigma and say, you know, that's not what all alcoholics look like. Sometimes they look yes. like me. You know, white, privileged, successful. That's sometimes what we look like. And I think that's a really, really important point. And I want to kind of say that a bit more as well, because um, I come from a family where my father was a high-functioning alcoholic. Well, I mean, he was a doctor and he still functioned as a doctor. And he was also, also an alcoholic and took a lot of Valium um, to kind of counteract some of the impacts of alcohol. And um, I myself was in a treatment center many years ago. I actually went in for codependency, but I was told I was an alcoholic. And I am also now sober. And I never was a daily drinker. Um, in fact, my own kind of codependence and wish to be kind of like polished um, meant that often that stopped me getting completely out of hand. But then when I would get out of hand, it would be like spectacular, spectacularly out of hand and kind of tremendous blackouts and everything. And um, But I would also be that person who just had one glass of red wine at a dinner because I um, didn't want to go down that road. And so I think... That kind of, um, and it went in a lot in my work with clients, we have to really investigate what language people like because al the word alcoholic people do find really alienating. And some people prefer heavy drinking or, um, alcohol dependent or whatever it might be. But really the question is, is the alcohol making your life unmanageable? Yeah. And people say, you know, is the alcohol costing you more than money? And, you know, for me, and I know that's a good question. This is a personal opinion for me. I think there's real power in accepting that word as alcoholic. I think dancing around the subject and using grey area drinking or heavy drink or whatever, a problem with alcohol or unhealthy relationship, whatever, I don't think that's, that's where the acceptance hasn't happened and for me. And I feel like it was, I didn't want to, I never wanted to go into any kind of meeting and say, hello, my name's Kat and I'm an alcoholic. Like that wasn't what I, when I was talking to my careers advisor in year five, in fifth form, it's not on my list of things I wanted to do. But, here, you know, I found myself there and, and I realized that it was so important for me to be honest with myself and for me to go, this is what I am and it's not shameful. I also get really frustrated because I do the 12 steps in AA. I've chosen to break my own anonymity because I talk about it a lot, but um, I get really frustrated because it's the only fellowship that defines the problem as the human. The human is a problem in the title. So it's Alcoholics Anonymous, whereas it's Narcotics Anonymous. The drugs are the problem. It's, it's uh, you know, Food Anonymous, Workaholics, and, you know, work, work Anonymous, whatever it is. Yeah, Sex, love and, sex and Love Addiction Anonymous. You know, it's, there's... It's defining the thing as the problem, but alcoholics anonymous is defining the human. And that, I'm like, just why can't we call it alcohol anonymous? That in it's just that tiny little shift really, I think, would make a lot of people far less reluctant to go in there than, than because at the moment you feel like you can't go in unless you are ready to identify as an alcoholic. It's not the truth. The only requirement for going in there is a desire to stop drinking. That's it. You can be drinking one glass of wine a night, but if you don't want to do that and you can't stop, then you have to, you can go in there and you're welcome. And that, so I do, that annoys me. But other than that, you know, it's however, whatever works for whoever is the best way to get sober or to get clean. But um, I am passionate about trying to raise, to smash the stigma around AA because for me, it's been a lifesaver. Yes, I very much agree with you about AA and generally 12-step fellowships because I think there's such a huge body of such loving and free, essentially, because you're just paying the meeting um, 
like for the rent and the tea and everything, but it's the most incredible support um, available. Like in nearly every location in the world, it's actually quite unbelievable when you really, really look at it and you can see how much um, holding and how the, the traditions like um, – there's so much guidance around being having integrity, and I think it's a tremendous resource. So I bang that drum a lot. I have a lot of people that say it's basically a cult, isn't it? And I'm like, well, first of all, I mean, if it is a cult and it's working for me, so that's fine. <laughs> Secondly, it's the only cult I've ever heard of that doesn't have a charismatic leader, doesn't take your money, and you can leave whenever you like. It doesn't sound like a cult to me. I mean, we stay through our own free will because it works and because. I have a community now of people that I've only known for two years, but they know me in some way far better than anybody else. And we talk from the same hymn sheet. So any, even any conflicts between us, that's managed in a really safe way. You know, I can trust these people because I know that we, ha- we work to the same, you know, plan. You know, we, we speak the same language. And that's... Uh, that community and that connection is why I think AA works as well as it does, actually. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that I had a lot of, I love actually Codependence Anonymous as well. And um, for two years, that was basically my social life. And there's such connection that you make because it's so real. And there's no like dancing around about, you know, we all put on our face and we put on our makeup. I used to be very much someone who put on her makeup and looked shiny. And if I looked shiny, it was such a defense about what was going on. That was like the most important thing. Even just going places without makeup was a huge thing for me early on in my recovery. And so in Coda, it was, I found it very beautiful. Yeah, it is. And that makeup's, the makeup's interesting because that's obviously a very literal example of what I think a lot of us who have addiction problems it's this somebody said it the other day they call I they called it the chameleonization <laughs> that we get into and it is that you know I was a, that's a good word I don't think it's a real word but we'll we'll take sure, it we'll make it yeah and that's why I could walk into any room I would know exactly who I needed to be what jokes I could tell what was funny what wasn't funny how I could get them to really fall in love with me and I would perform like that drink helped me do that um but I was doing that long before I was drinking. I was doing that as a primary school kid. I was doing that as a teenager. I was doing that through, you know, my whole life. And when I went into recovery, I was like, I couldn't even tell you what my favorite music is because I just always relied on other people to tell me. And, you know, and, I, and it's, and I would lie. I would lie all the time, not necessarily massive, big, scary lies, but. The fear of almost being caught out, the fear of not being accepted. You know, people would go, uh, oh, my God, have you tried that cool new restaurant? I'd be like, yeah, it's amazing. I haven't. I haven't probably even heard of the restaurant. You know, I hadn't listened to the album. But this idea that if I said, oh, no, I don't, I haven't heard of it, sorry, would mean that I wasn't accepted. And it was just this complete lack of self-worth coupled at the same time with this constant self-centered thinking. You know, this constant like, what do they think of me? I'm, I have to be, they're looking at this. All of this, I'm not enough. Da, da, da. It's just too much. It's too much. And it's so interesting what you brought up now because you talked about, I would talk about hypervigilance and um, reading the room and um, that thing about I need you to be okay so I can be okay, which is kind of the core of people-pleasing or um, codependence in a way. And very much based on what we learn in our family of origin about how we need to be so our parents can be okay. 
How would you link some of this to your to your childhood or your experience of school? I mean, I had a very privileged childhood, and I, and in a lot of ways, I had an ex, an incredible childhood. My parents are fantastic. Um, it's not to say that they are perfect; they're not. Um, you know, my mum was a very heavy drinker, and my dad was away a lot. Uh, irony of ironies, and I used to hate her for it. Um, and it was only when I found myself in that position, a mother drinking too much with a husband that was away a lot, I realized life has this uncanny way of humbling you. Um, and I developed such compassion for her because, you know, it's hard. God, it's hard. It is hard. So there was a lot of drinking growing up. And then when I was 11, uh, I went to boarding school. And I know that when I've been in AA meetings, I hear an awful lot of people in there who have been to boarding school. I don't think it's necessarily... Well, it, it, I mean, I think the nature of boarding school is a very damaging one. And when I was 11, I went to boarding school and I think everybody thought I would be fine. I was always the kid that was like first to jump on the high slides or whatever. Like, I, you know, that was fine. And then after a week of being there, I became pathologically homesick. Like I would wake up crying. I would cry through every lesson. I would cry myself to sleep. Um, I would call my mum four, five, seven, ten times a day begging them to bring me home. And this went on until February half term, nonstop, absolutely relentless. I didn't have any friends because, of course, they were all very sympathetic at the beginning. But by, you know, three months later, they four months later, they were bored. Fair enough. Um, and I went home for February half term and I came back and something had shifted and I stopped crying. And at the time I thought, oh, I'm all right now. But now I sort of feel like actually it's more like those Romanian orphans that just stop crying because they know nobody's coming. And I think that that was it. I the people yeah, that, you shut down. I shut down. And the people that I were the only people who could rescue me, my parents, didn't didn't do it. And I know that they thought they were doing the right thing. You know, she's just got to stick it out and then she'll be fine. Um and you know, and I was there until I was eighteen, and I was fine in a lot of ways. And I had an incredible I had incredible opportunities there and I made some you know, really lovely friends, but it really solidified in me this idea that I was on my own. And so it's really interesting. No one's coming. Yeah. When you talk about, co which also made it very difficult for my whole life to ask for help. But um, when you talk about codependency, it's always interesting for me because I'm, I feel like I'm one or the other. I'm either like, I either take somebody hostage and I am completely codependent and I cannot let them go. That's normally a romantic relationship. Or I just never get through this. I don't let anybody through the surface. And that's been my generally platonic friendships. And I don't care. And I will just leave university and never look back. I'll leave high school and never look back. You know, I, and, and it's, it's been hard to manage finding a middle ground for that. But that's extremely hard because we're not taught. I mean, we're never taught that we are okay with, with, what are we talking about here about not feeling that we're okay so how can we show our full self in a relationship because you're going to leave me at some point i think i always characterize codependency as a continuous thing about self-abandonment and really letting someone see us is terrifying terrifying yeah and i think you know we i'm 42 my parents generation did better than their parents and will do better than they did and so on and so forth but they didn't talk about feelings or relationships they didn't talk about self-esteem or confidence um you know 
that wasn't what parenting was. It was, I, you know, I don't remember snuggling up on the sofa and watching movies with my parents or, you know, they got screamy when I was in trouble. And as long as I wasn't in trouble, they were there and it was fine. But it was, there wasn't that much else there. You know, it was really about achievement. As I said at the beginning, you know, when I, my dad would sit at every swimming gala and I think he's probably still got all the, the race lists now with my times written next to them. But he rarely, you know, cuddled me when I was crying or spoke to me about how I was feeling. It, and I love them to death. And, you know, it's not about blaming them at all because I know I'm, I, in 40 years' time, my kids can sit here and have probably a very similar conversation in a lot of ways. Although, bless them, they do, they do know, they do get bombarded with a lot of the 12 step stuff. <laughs> Start him young. <laughs> when Billy comes to me and she goes, Billy did this, Billy, and Bo goes, Billy did this, Billy. I go, what did you do? And they're like, what? And they're like, no, no, but they, but she, I was like, I, I'm going to get to her. I'll ask her, but what did you do? What did you do in this? She went, oh, I might have snatched a toy. I was like, okay, Billy, oh, what did you do? She's like, well, I slapped her. I'm like, okay, so there we go. That's what that is. What are you going to say? And I'm really sorry I slapped you. I'm sorry I snatched the toy. And it's like, that's the important, that's, that's what I hope. It's important. That's really life changing right there, what you just said to them, because I think looking at our own um, impact and owning it and loving ourselves, you know, we're all the one who snatched the toy or who gave a slap at something, you know what I mean? And like owning our whole person and loving ourselves is, I think, one of the greatest things, especially for girls, because we're just so always taught to to split off, like actually if having a fight response for a girl is really useful. We need to keep a hold of that so that we don't fawn all over the place and just like send danger signals to all these men who are trying to do things to us or whatever it is. But I think what you said also about the no blame, you know, I sat with a therapist of mine and I desperately wanted to blame, uh, blame my parents, blame. And I mean, I think we do go through a period of blame because I think that's an important part of recovery where you look at the impact they've had on you. but. We would just have to blame back through the generations because all of these patterns we're talking about have come from the grandparents or the great grandparents. And we, I find that quite, um, kind of soothing in a way because when you're trying to break cycles in your own family, it can feel like I absolutely have to get this perfect act. This is something that I'm going to achieve. That's how really I felt. I'm going to change this all for my children. And I can't because I've had a lot of rage. I've also been really dysregulated. My nervous system has to be repatterned. You know, there's so much. I can't do it all perfectly. And so just there's so much comfort to be taken and in, in just not blaming, actually. Well, and I learn a lot about because obviously, you know, when you do step four and step five, you go through all the shitty things that you've done and people have done to you. And then you have to identify your part in it. I really struggled at first with that difference between taking responsibility and accountability and it being your fault and being your being to blame because they're not the same thing and it's like when I when I was talking I talked through this you know with my sponsor I talk about it a lot it's it, it can be quite triggering so just a heads up for anybody who's been through any kind of sexual assault or rape or anything like that you know that discussion is really hard to have because it's like well what's my part in it and there are times when it's there is no part in it you know and for me what I've realized is I wish the world was a safe enough place for me to be able to lie and black out naked in the middle of the street without somebody putting a penis inside me. That's how the world should be. But I also have learned to accept the world, people, places and things the way it is and not the way I want it to be. And so for me, I was not to blame 
It was not my fault for any of those things that happened. But my part in it was my drinking. That was my part in it. And I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody else because I also know people get raped sober. People get raped in marriages. This is not, but for me on my, I realized that just like I lock my doors at night because I know there are people out there who, if I don't do that, they'll come in and steal my stuff. I know that my responsibility is to keep myself safe and I am not safe if I'm in blackout or if I'm without my wits or if I'm drunk. And that bit's on me. And so me being sober after my experiences of sexual assault and rape, me being sober is my version of me locking my doors at night. Yeah, and just to pick up on your analogy, even if we've left the doors open, it's still always wrong for someone to come into our house and it's always their responsibility if they've done that. I think that's an important thing to add. And that doesn't mean that they are not horrible people. That doesn't mean that they didn't do an evil thing. It doesn't mean that it is my fault. But now that that has happened, at some point I have to go, I am responsible for myself. I cannot rely or expect other people to keep me safe. As much as I wish we could, I can't. And so for me, sobriety is about keeping myself it's a responsibility to myself and it's and it's also it's an amends to myself it's an amends to that person that had those awful things happen to them and felt like it was her fault for the longest time it's my amends every day is keeping myself sober and safe now it doesn't mean that terrible things can't happen when you're sober of course they can but what i do know is for me in sobriety those terrible things haven't happened and the chances of them happening are significantly lower. And so that's that differentiation between what is my fault and what I am accountable for and what's my responsibility has been such a huge learning curve for me. Yeah, I think that's such an important discernment. And how do you apply that? Because so much of what you're talking about is actually about reparenting yourself and really giving yourself now what you may not have got in childhood and what you may not have been able to give yourself when you were drinking. How do you kind of use that accountability and not beating yourself up in, in motherhood? And also the thing about really reparenting yourself, because it can be so painful trying to give our children. Well, I mean, I think it is painful and often very difficult giving our children what we didn't have. I think the self-awareness, doing the work, the self-awareness, whether that's therapy or steps or whatever it is, has really allowed me to see that. It's, I've decentered myself from every conversation and every situation. You know, I am not the center of everything. So tell us a bit more about what you mean by that. Well, so, you know, it was always about, A, it was all sorts of things. What could I control? The voice in my head, like, you're not good enough. You're not thinking. And this is that self-centeredness. And people assume that that means you're really selfish and you don't talk, think about anybody else. That's what self-centeredness is. But actually, for me, it's more about this constant loop in my head about me, which is like, even if it's negative, like you're not good enough or you're a terrible mother or, you know, you shouldn't wear that crop top or whatever it is, or they don't like you or they're talking about you behind your back. That is me putting myself in the center of everything when in reality, they probably couldn't give less of a shit. You know, in reality, even if they are talking about me, what somebody else thinks about me is absolutely none of my business. It's none of my business. Yes. I love that thing. So it's as much as this self was decentering myself and recognizing I'm not in control of everything. I cannot control anything or anybody else except myself, my reactions and my actions. That's it. Yes. 
And that, and when I applied that to parenting, that was really hard <laughs> because there is that feeling in you, well, I'm the mother, so of course I have to make them do some stuff. And of course, there are times when that is, you know, there are times we have to be a little bit discerning about how rigidly to apply that stuff. But now I realize that a lot of it is about communication with my kids. And I think a lot of us underestimate our children in how much they understand and how much they want to know and how much they want to hear from you. And you can deliver all sorts of things in a very age appropriate way. Um, you know, but we talk, you know, we talk about kids. They know that I'm an addict. They know that I'm an alcoholic. They know that I go to meetings. My youngest is always in, always climbs in when I'm in a meeting. She's like, can I wave the yellow card? You know, all of this stuff. Just tell her come um, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves it. Um, and, um, and, and we've had that conversation with them. And then, you know, when I lose my shit, which I do because I'm human, none of this work or self-improvement is about not doing those things. It's about when you do those things, learning how to do that repair. And I never had that repair as a kid. You know, to this day, I love her very much. And I know exactly why she can't do this. I know that vulnerability for her is just an impossible weakness that she cannot afford because of, surf because of her own story. But she never apologized. You know, she never said she was sorry. And so I make a point of saying to my kids, I am really sorry that I lost my shit. I mean, I might phrase it differently, but essentially, I'm really sorry I lost my shit. There's no excuse. And yes, I might be tired and this, that and the other, but actually, I shouldn't have spoken to you in that way. And, and that really opens up uh, a conversation. Not initially. At first, they're like, hmm. But eventually, you do get to a point where your kids start to copy that and they go I'm really sorry too you know I know I should have just got my fucking shoes on and again they probably phrase it slightly differently as well yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it it's just recognizing that I am not there to control them all I can do is act in a way they say in the in the 12 steps it's attraction not promotion all I can do is act in a way that I hope they see as positive as something that that is of value rather than act in a way, rather than A, promote it and go, you have to behave like this. You should definitely do this. You know, I go, well, you know, if it was me, I would probably have to go and say, sorry, because I need to make an amends about that because I messed up. If that's just me, it's up to you and I will talk about it, whatever. But I would suggest that might be something to think about. Doesn't mean to say don't scream at them and go, you need to tidy your room now, otherwise I'm throwing the wee in the, the switch in the bin. I do do that as well. <laughs> yes, I understand that totally. Um, I think there's so much beauty in what you've just said because going back to what you talked about right at the beginning about the perfectionism and about how you were going to really nail motherhood and project manage the hell out of it and just get it all fabulous, that perfectionism also often leads us to want to control our children because if we can't have perfect children and we're all perfect, our shame gets terribly touched and then we descend into um, totally shit. And so letting go of that control and just um, noticing that, like, what's that poem that says, our children come through us, they are not of us, like they're not our possessions. And I, I love the way you've um, phrased that about, yeah, we can only control our, our people, places, and so we can only control our reactions in ourselves. But what you just said around rapture and repairs, also it gives our children the greatest gift of learning that they don't have to be perfect as well. I, you know, and I was very guilty of that in my early years of parenting. And I can see the repercussions of that in my eldest. You know, when I was still in active addiction, there is a real, I mean, part of this, I think, is first child syndrome, but part of it definitely is me, you know, and I see that and I have to, 
the, you know, it can be a reminder of the things I did wrong. You know, I did try to control her. She's very, she can get very, very, I wanted her to be perfect. And if she makes a mistake, she can get a really disproportionate reaction. And sometimes it gets to a point where she won't try to do something because she's afraid to make the mistakes. And I know that that is in part, at least, to do with my controlling nature as a as a mother. And that wasn't because I was psychopathic. It was because I was terrified that I was a terrible person, a terrible mother. And if my kid wasn't perfect, then everybody would know. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there'll be a time when I have to make amends to my children. And a, a lot of that will be a living amends. A lot of that will be just me staying sober every day. A lot of that will be just me trying to be patient, doing all the things as well as I can. But there will be some things as my kids get older, you know, that I'm able to sit down and go, you know, I need to say I'm sorry for this. And that's really powerful because not only does it give them permission to not be perfect, which is important, but also it shows them how to be sorry, shows them what accountability is. And it's not a weakness. I mean, you know, growing up how I grew up, I don't, I still find saying sorry hard, not to the kids. For some, I'm absolutely fine saying sorry to the kids. That's, but if I have to say sorry to my husband, Oh my God, I have to like dig it out of my loins. Like I, I want to like whisper it. <laughs> I want to, I want to choke on it. I would rather choke on it than have the word come out. And it's, and I, you know, and I know where that comes from. I know, you know, and I, I am, I, I work on it and I do say it. I'm not always as gracious as I should be, in, uh, but it, we're not all perfect. None and of us are. None of us are. And, you know, and I think it's important. I found real, um, empowerment in being able to go, I am really bad at this. I'm really bad at saying sorry. You know, this is why going back to this idea of deficits of character, you know, we talk about AA and they talk about your deficits of character and how you want them to be removed. And it's important for me to know that there are deficits to my character. You know, it's important to me to know that I'm egotistical. I can use that for the power of good, but I haven't always. I haven't always used it for the power of good. I've often used it for the power of selfish evil. Same with my inability to say sorry and take accountability. You know, it comes from a place of, or my struggle with that, it comes from a place of being terrified of messing up and terrified of being caught out and terrified of being wrong because then people won't, then people won't love me. But it doesn't mean that that's okay. It's still really awful for the people who I will happily throw under the bus because I don't want to admit I've made a mistake owning that side of me and being able to talk to you about it on a podcast and being able to say, I did these terrible things, whether it was because I was drunk or whether it was because I was hurt, or whether it was because I was afraid or I was abandoned or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter why. It doesn't really matter why I behave badly. But it's, it's so empowering for me to go, these are my deficits of character and this is what I will like fall back on if I'm not spiritually fit and healthy and that's why those deficits of character are important to me because you know I can use them for the power of good and I try to but I also need to know that they are a double-edged sword and they can cause me an awful lot of problems and they can hurt a lot of people and so you know I think a lot of us struggle with recognizing our own deficits and all I can say from my experience is being able to recognize those and talk openly about them has been the most healing but also empowering thing yeah i totally agree with you and i think that so i suppose i language it that we 
we, like the basis of growing self up is no matter what's happened to us, we have to take responsibility as adults for ourselves and for what we pass on, basically, because we might have had a whole lot of terrible things happen. And uh, indeed, many people have had a whole lot of terrible things happen. But as adults, we are responsible for how we react in any situation. But I also think we need a massive dose of self-compassion because all of the things, like all of these deficits come from our wounds, our trauma, our traumatic stress, what we didn't get. And I think the portal of going through self-compassion and like loving ourselves for, for some of the terrible things we've done, but making amends for it or kind of taking responsibility for it is so important. And what you said as well about your girls, you're really showing them they matter. And that's like so profound because many of us grew up thinking we didn't matter. I think we were just a vehicle in someone else's story to be polished or be clever or be good or win at all the competitions so our parents could feel good about us. A hundred percent. And it's when you said that, it, you know, sometimes it just takes somebody to phrase something in a certain way. And I think that's the thing. It, it, I didn't feel like I mattered. And it wasn't because they didn't love me. I know that they loved me. It was just that it wasn't a time where kids were given that much credit or that much attention or even that much importance. You know, it was like we were just there to be little until we weren't little anymore. And, you know, and that was their job to raise us, to you know, and to give them credit. At that point, parenting wasn't avert. You know, they were exactly. It was just a noun. They were parents, and nobody gave much of a shit how you did it, as long as they, you know, were okay. Were alive, basically. You were a parent, Um, and so, and you know, I don't hold any compassion, but I also think it's interesting that you touch on that idea of the bad things that we've done and and being not so hard on ourselves. And I think, I think we spoke about this in the. Pre, like before. So if I'm repeating myself, then stop me. But it's that uh, differentiation between guilt and shame. And that, you know, guilt is, and this is Brené Brown, I'd love to be able to take it for myself, but it isn't. But I heard it and it made my like head spin. And I, I just think she's wonderful. But she said, guilt is I've, I've done a bad thing. Shame is I am a bad person. And a lot of people go, oh, mum guilt, mum guilt. Um, it's wrong. What we're talking about there is mum shame, because guilt is actually a useful thing. Guilt is the thing inside you that says, you messed up a little bit there. You you need to take accountability for that. You need to make it right. That's what guilt is. Great. You do that. The guilt goes. You've done it. Shame is not that. Shame is self-inflicted. Shame is a fantasy. Shame is this story that you have told yourself about what other people think and have done. And actually, when you think about it like that, there's very little that we can gen- that, that shame, that we can be shameful of, that we can feel that shame. Like, I, there are certain things that I am ashamed of that I have done, but I also know that in my amends of those things, I don't have to hold on to shame as a feeling. I, I, can atta- I can attach, a, you know, that was, that was shame, that bit that over there. I can attach that shame to the things that I've done. And the guilt has made me make that right. But I, I will not internalize that shame anymore. This mum guilt thing is not, in fact, I'm going to write this now. I could write an article about it. I actually think everything is about shame because I think we've been taught that we're not good enough, essentially. And we learn in our families of origin about when we don't matter that we have shame. But so... So that's why everyone goes into that collapse around, I'm a terrible mother, I'm a shit mother. No, it's important. It's really important. I think shame is complete. It's like a cancer and it will eat you from the inside out. And if you're feeling shame, it's like just to stop and go, is it shame or is it guilt? Because if it's guilt, you can say sorry. 
if I'm feeling shame because, you know, I shouted at my kids or I forgot to pick them up, that I have ADHD, so I have done that. Actually, it's not shame. It's not me being a terrible mum. That's me making a mistake. I've done something wrong that I can fix. Shame isn't, it can't be attached to anything real because it's not a real feeling. It's something you've created yourself. It's something that lives in this fantasy that we're comparing ourselves to this ridiculous standard. It's just not helpful. Feel guilty. Feel as guilty as you like. Go and make that right. But don't hold on to the shame. So shame, we get that sort of, it's a relational thing that comes in our really early on in our childhood we, when we don't get what we need, essentially not seen. And so just even talking about it here, we, we break it down because we, we listen to each other's stories and we hear, oh, she seems really great. Um, and, and she's done these things. Therefore, like, I'm also okay as a person. And that's why I love hearing people's stories because we learn so much and we think, God, I really have admired them for such a long time and they're wonderful. So they're saying these things and it's okay. And I think that like storytelling between women is one of the greatest ways to break down shame and, and men as well. But well, I think that's the basis of AA, right? That's why AA meetings work. You know, it's like, yeah, somebody tells their story and we all, we don't recoil in horror. We go, Oh my God, that was me. I've done that. And they're so together now. This is amazing. You know, and you're like, oh, maybe I, I can be better or maybe I can be clean. Maybe I'm not the total fuck up I thought I was. Um, and again, that's the self-centeredness. Again, it's like, I'm so fucked up. I'm more fucked up than you. I'm not, I can't ever possibly not be. And it's like, just for a minute, stop thinking about yourself and just, just put your, like, shut up and open your ears, listen to somebody else. Let's not make it all about you. And let's just accept that maybe. You know, all right, your fuck-ups might be good, but who said that they were the worst in the world? Like, you're not that important. Do you know, that's the thing. I thought I was the worst person in the world. And somebody's like, how egotistical of you, by the way. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, my, I'm, not any spe- I'm not special in any way. My fuck-ups are everybody else's fuck-ups. And, you know, you're never the only one. You I know, know we're never the only one. You're never but- the only one. For everyone who's listening in AA, they say that we all want to be special and different. And I think we do all want to be special and different. And I always think we have to love on our inner child so much about that because it's so much about just like, again, the childhood stuff. But but we're not special and different because we are all each equal and the same, basically. Well, we are. And, you know, and it's addiction is a really shitty thing, but it has some really great lessons to teach us. And one of them is addiction. It's as inclusive as it comes. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a man, a woman, whether you, what religion you are, what color you are, where you live, how much money you have, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't differentiate. It's a great leveler. It's a great leveler. And, you know, I am friends with people that I probably never would have met ever because maybe their story did include homelessness. Maybe their story wasn't as privileged as mine, or maybe it was way more privileged than mine. And I never would have met them if I hadn't been in recovery. And I, if I had have done, I probably would have gone, well, we've got absolutely nothing in common. But what addiction has shown me, what recovery has shown me is that we are all actually exactly the same. And it doesn't really matter what your trappings are. You know, yes, we're all crazy in the 12 steps, but I feel like we know we're crazy. Yes. That's the difference. We know that we are insane in a very normal way. For years, I thought everybody else was crazy. I thought I was the smart one. Um, and it's, it's really that decentering of myself that has helped me find a peace 
uh, that, and you know, and they say, oh, you're going to get a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I remember hearing that's very common. The thing with AA is it's full of like all these cliches and sayings and all the rest of it. And then you're like, I hate them all, but then you realize they're all true. And they say, you're going to get a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I used to hear that and go, I want to punch everybody in the face. And what I realized is that a life beyond my wildest dreams isn't about the big house and the shiny car and the fancy life. It's just that absence of panic and anxiety and self-hatred. And and it's that relaxation of holding on so tight as well. You know, and the irony is like once you give up drinking and you do the work and all this fit, a lot of the time those incredible things, the, the other stuff comes as well. But that's not what it's about. And No, the internal peace, I think, when you just touched on less panic and anxiety, that internal peace is priceless. Yeah, it really is. Really and, priceless. And, and, and I had, ne- and here's the thing, I'd never felt it my entire life. I'd never felt it because I was always in turmoil. Even when I wasn't drinking as a kid, I was in term. I'd never felt peace. And so for me to be able to sit and go, I don't feel any panic or anxiety at the moment because I know I'm doing my best is, is like you say, it's priceless. I wanted to ask you one last question before we, before we finished about how do you kind of keep yourself sane, first of all, in mothering and bring in as much ease as possible? Because you joked earlier about pizza and um, fish fingers, but I think there's often this punishment that we have. We have to like be like magic hands and making all these fabulous like organic meals, blah, 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 blah. And actually, I'm a huge fan of bringing in ease in as many ways as we can and not attaching ourselves to what our children eat and blah, blah, blah. So how do you bring in ease in, in your mothering and so that, you know, you can have your cup full? First of all, I stopped micromanaging my husband. Right. Just like everybody else, you know, I tried to control it. I tried to be like, this is how you have to do it. You do this. Why aren't you doing it like this? Have you not done that yet? Well, no, no, um, And I stopped doing that. And that was, that freed up a lot of time and mental energy, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, yes. So, you know, I didn't just abandon, you know, I left it to him. I'm like, okay, you've got the kids today. That was it. I didn't then go, so their uniform's here. This is where everything is. I've made sure that they've done this. I was like, you have the kids. Crack on. Play. Yeah, you're the other parent. You should You'll know. learn. And he did. And he did. Because he's, I know everybody's like, oh, men are useless. Actually, hmm, there's people going to hate me for this. They're not useless. And also, I think that we really enable, as women, that uselessness by being controlling and um, not relinquishing. Uh, and also, we, we're very good at being martyrs. And we often mistake motherhood for martyrdom. And so I have, so that's the first thing I've given that up as much as possible. Obviously, I still am a naggy bitch at times, but essentially that's what I try and do. And I make my life as easy as possible. I don't cook. I'm not a cooker. I thought you had to be a really good chef or you wanted to, you had to love cooking to be a good mum. I'm not. Thankfully, my husband is. So he does all the cooking. I don't do any cooking. Oh, that's wonderful. If I do make the kids dinner, it's fish fingers or pizza or I might make a spag bowl occasionally, but I don't beat myself up if I have not made a meal from scratch. By any stretch, I also have to exercise, and that is not—that's not necessarily like working at the gym seven days a week. It could just be going out for a walk, which is generally what it is. Um, I have to exercise, and that's it. Oh, the other thing we do—me and my husband do tend to have what we call a morning meeting, which doesn't sound very sexy, but we just sit down every morning and we go because we're both self-employed, so our schedules aren't the same. So we're like, so what have you got on this week, or what have you got on today? This is what, and we'll say, this is my, I'll say my expectation of the day looks like this. What does yours look like? Because my big, our biggest fights come from when my expectation of something 
doesn't it doesn't live up to that expectation. So if I think I can just hide away in the office and not do anything, and then all of a sudden my husband's like, "Oh, by the way, I'm out all day, so you're gonna have to do all the kids." That's when I lose my. I can't I can't pivot that quickly. And then I'm mad and then it's not nice. So we try and do that. I'm like, this is what I'm hoping to get out of the day. What about you? And then we'll figure it out. That's an excellent suggestion. You know, it's it's a daily thing. And that's, I wake up and I make sure I do a meeting. I do a meeting every single morning at eight, an AA meeting every single morning at eight online. And we communicate and I, some days we go, we just survive. I mean, I'll be honest, I can't remember the last time any of my bathrooms were clean. That would normally in the olden days have sent me crazy. Yeah, into a meltdown. Yeah. But now I'm like, I don't have the time to do it. Nobody else is living in my bathroom. It's not great, but it's also not the end of the world. Yeah, it's also okay. And it's that letting go of the perfectionism and that kind of, because I think so many of us have lived with the appearance and reality and we never mind what the actual reality is. We just wanted a shiny appearance and closing that expectation gap or just having them be more similar the expectation, oh, sorry, the reality, the same as the appearance, is so freeing. Yeah. Well, they say, don't they, an expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. And so it's like, my do- my eldest daughter is very guilty of this. She'll be like, well, I, I apologized to Bo and she hasn't apologized back to me. And now I'm just furious. And I'm like, well, if you're going into a conversation, expecting somebody to react in a certain way that you think is acceptable and they react differently because they are, after all, their own person, they can make their own decisions, then no wonder you're mad. The only expectations you need to have are for yourself. And if you stick to those, then you'll be fine. Forget everybody else. Exactly. And that detachment, that's very sophisticated emotional reasoning that you're teaching her now, which is going to be so helpful for her in her life because that detachment from how other people need to be. That's where the codependency kicks in, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that is so letting, like pulling all our projections back into ourselves brings us so much peace. And it's hard. It is really hard. This has been very beautiful. I've laughed. I've loved it. Oh, me too. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all your wisdom and your generosity and your honesty and your realness. Because right there, I know that the listeners will, it'll be busting shame all over the place for people. I hope so. I hope. Can I just be really cheeky and plug um, a book that's out? Yes, of course you can. No, I'm going to get to that. Just to say that you're 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 not so smug now on on instagram but all of that detail will be in the show notes but also tell us about i know you're writing a novel at the moment and you've also actually got a book yeah so there's a couple of books coming but the one that's out at the moment is called the first time you smiled um or was it just wind and i have to say i was in waterstones the other day i was like oh just see if they've got a copy of my book and for the life of me i could not remember what my book was called (laughs) i was there for five minutes until i had to google my name on amazon i was like that's what it was called. <laughs> I don't know if it's menopause or ADHD or just early onset amnesia, but I could not bring it out of my brain cavities. Anyway, it, that's what it's called. Um, and it's basically for, it's a great gift book, really. But in terms of motherhood, it's uh, one of those baby journals where you can record like first time they ate and walked and lost a tooth and all the rest of it. But we've put some much more fun stuff in there. It's much more parent centric as well. So it's a lot of your firsts as a parent. But really, it's like a love letter to new parents from me. And in it, it talks a lot about what we talked about earlier, about that new motherhood quagmire that you can get into, the cesspit that it can be. And I hope that even if you never fill it in, just reading those bits that I've written about all of that stuff is something that I hope would be really helpful. So you can get it from all good bookstores. But I would ask, and I know people hate this, I would ask if you 
you could buy it from Amazon, that would be amazing just because all their, it counts when it's important. Oh, yes, for the algorithms. For the algorithms, but also for the ratings and the, the bestseller bits and all the rest of it. Instagram's, uh, Amazon's really important, which. Say its name again. Cause it's I've seen... called, uh, the first time you smiled or was it just wind? Um, so yeah, it's out now. Thank you. And now, um, other books? Yes, yeah, so I've written I've written a novel uh, that is with my agent. It's a very fictionalized version of my own story. So again, I hope it's all about relate. Like relatability is the key for me. So I hope that it's something that women of my age in, can just relate to. Um, but it is it is it does include like addiction. It does include all sorts of things. But it's uh, darkly funny. I would hope as well. Um, and that's going to be a big hit. Wow. I have got, I hope so. I need something. And then, uh, the third book that was coming out is hopefully going to be a nonfiction on sort of the mental load and the relate and relationships and what I've learned navigating those things. Oh, that'll be brilliant as well. Because what you just talked about, about letting go, letting your husband just do his parenting role without you micromanaging it. That's the whole book. Yeah. No, totally. It is. And, and, I've really, and again, it's like, you know, I had to let go of that. And so now, so I wrote the mental load list, which I'd also like to show you. It's a downloadable, um, it's a digital download on my website, notsosmugnow.com. And I put together a whole list of all the stuff that goes through women's heads that we would include in the mental load every day. So, and you know, it turned out to be 47 typed pages long. So. Yeah, I've seen that download of yours. Yeah. So that's available as well. So they can just go to notsosmugdar.com and find that download because I think that mental load, uh, that, that actual download of yours is extremely helpful facilitating conversations within relationships, especially if you are feeling as a woman unable to really represent yourself. There is a section at the end where I do sort of give you a guide on how to approach that, that topic. And it, it can seem quite convoluted in the way I've done it, but you'll probably recognize it if you're a 12 stepper, but, um, I think it's really important to recognize that this is a conversation that in my echo chamber of like mothers on Instagram, we talk about all the time, but actually it is a very secret, quiet, powerful seed of resentment in a lot of relationships that a lot of people haven't even really understood or recognized, especially potentially the men, but also women, you know, and I think so. Yes, it's all in there. You can download it. It's in, if you go to notsosmugnow.com and go to the store, you'll find it in there. Yes. And again, all the details will be in the show notes. But just search for Not So Smug Now because it's all there. And, and lots of hilariousness. If you don't let follow Kath on Instagram, you have to go and look at two of her videos. One about, um, actually one about Worcestershire sauce, oh, which yes. I can't even really pronounce, which is from a bit earlier this year, I think, which is hilarious. And one about um, birth plans, about swimming lessons. Oh, the birth plans really set the cat amongst the doula pigeons. Let me tell you, they did not like that at all. <laughs> I know it's very true. I mean, we were all that one who had this perfect birth plan. And also um, swimming lessons. Yeah. And I love your two mums ones. So go and have a look at her Instagram. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for having me. It's been lovely to chat today. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, giving us your time. been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself. 
for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.